Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Joining us uh, immediately is Ambassador Alexander Sherba. He's the former Ukraine ambassador to Austria. He was also an ambassador at large during the 2014 negotiations with Russia. After its annexation of Crimea, his book is Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. And you'll find him on Twitter at O-L-E-X underscore S-C-H-E-R-B-A at O-L-E-X underscore Sherba. Ambassador, thank you very much for, for joining us. How are you and, and how are things in Ukraine generally tonight? Well, it's a horrific time in Ukraine. Uh, Putin has attacked. Uh, he miscalculated. He thought that uh, Ukraine would be welcoming him uh, and he would be just fighting a bunch of so-called nationalists. And uh, in the end, uh, now he sees that uh, nobody is welcoming him. He cannot, he, does, he, he cannot find any nationalists, but he sees a nation that is resilient and defending itself and uh, a nation that he cannot uh, defend face-to-face. So, so he's taking it out on innocent civilians. Uh, and uh, the things that are happening across the country, they are reminiscent of uh, what was here 80 years ago when the Nazis came. It's, 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 it's incomprehensible. Yeah, just four weeks ago, your cities in Ukraine were very much like cities in Canada, functional People going about their work, their recreation, enjoying their lives, had some concerns about the Russians massing on the border, but life was uh, progressing as it as it normally did. And today, the, the human suffering is absolutely outrageous from what we see at a distance. You're living it. So you tweeted earlier today about a Russian tank crushing your car. I want people to be aware this is tough to hear. A Russian tank crushing your car with two adults and a child inside. Yes. It's uh, it's what what happens across the country. The two adults were in the front front seat. They were dead uh, right away. The child had to burn alive uh, while was with the car. So uh, it's just it's it's what happened. It's happening here. A friend of mine, yeah, the other day um, lost uh, her father. Uh, she 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 works in one of the EU countries and. Uh, uh, her father and mother live uh, in the vicinity of Kiev. The father was driving a car. A uh, Russian tank uh, sighted him, uh, turned the cannon and uh, shot. And uh, the man was instantly dead. And now the mother is sitting in front of the of this dead body of, of, of her husband. And uh, she can't even bury him because uh, everywhere is fighting. This is this is Ukraine's life right now. It's hard to believe that a supposedly professional army would behave in such a manner. It's hard to believe that one human would behave toward other humans in such a manner. Uh, tell us, though, a little bit, please, about uh, the successes of the Ukraine military. You've been very successful, punching above your weight. Uh, the Russian military is taking heavy losses, and you tweeted footage earlier today of the wreckage of two Russian helicopters shot down. And and by way of contrast, you wrote that one Russian pilot survived, and he was taken to the hospital. Yes, yes, uh, there, there are already 
pictures of him. There is a passport of him uh, online. Uh, he's in a bad condition, uh, but probably he will survive. Now he's not conscious. And uh, uh, the other um, pilot uh, burned uh, alive uh, in his uh, in his uh, helicopter. Uh, by the way, uh, there were a couple of uh, there are quite a, quite a bunch of uh, Russian planes that were shot down by Ukrainian air defense, and in a number of cases, um, the uh, the parachutes uh, didn't work, so people, they they just uh, got killed. Uh, so it uh, it looks like uh, someone is trying to avoid uh, prisoner or war is taken uh, by Ukraine. It's just kind of horrific. Yeah, it is horrific. But your military has really acquitted itself very well against the Russians. Also, uh, would you speak to us a little bit, please, about the foreign fighters who are joining the Ukraine forces? Canadians and very skilled former Canadian military members have gone to Ukraine, as well as young men without military experience, but uh, who want to help. What that must be? Um, I mean, talk, talk to us about that. About the, the, you know, foreign fighters saying, we're not going to accept this. We're going to go and join the Ukraine military. Well, there are uh, good people from uh, across the world. There are British, there are Canadians, uh, there are Polish. Uh, all kinds of Slavic nations are fighting with us. Americans, of course. And uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, Russian army is heavily behind the schedule that Putin uh, put in front of them, because uh, it's 16th day uh, of the uh, of this war, and uh, they don't have uh, any uh, big city uh, in Ukraine under control aside from Kherson uh, in Ukraine south, and not quite under control because that's exactly the vicinity where uh, these uh, two helicopters were shot down, and uh, one of the pilots was uh, taken by Ukrainian army. So they are getting uh, really their but, but kicked uh, across the country, and uh, we are immensely, immensely thankful to the foreign soldiers who uh, came in really in big number uh, to Ukraine. Yeah. Ambassador, there was a lot of talk about a no-fly zone. Ukraine really wanted a no-fly zone. Your president spoke to uh, President Biden, asked for a NATO-imposed no-fly zone. It just appears to be a non-starter for the U.S. and NATO, Although Poland wanted to deliver 29 MiG uh, or 28 MiG 29s, um, speak to us about that. What is it that uh, Ukraine is asking for specifically now from NATO and from the United States if the no-fly zone issue is is really uh, uh, concluded? And and is there still a hope of getting those MiG 29s into your air force? Well, it's time and again that uh, uh, NATO and the West have been showing. Uh, exuding weakness in this conflict uh, uh, and facing Putin, quite frankly, it has been going on for years, if not decades. Um, just, I'm, 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 I agree with American Senator uh, Mitt Romney, who said, uh, "Why are we fearful of what Putin would do, and not Putin is fearful of what we can do, because he is not the only big boy in the room. He is not the only." Uh, nuclear power, as it looks like he only uh, has has this ability, you know, to blackmail the world, and he's using it. And right now, we understand that uh, the West has blinked uh, many times uh, with regard to, you know, this uh, 
no-fly zone and so on with with these, you know, uh, MiG-29 fighter jets. So uh, what we expect uh, and what I think would be the right, the only right thing to do, at least give Ukraine uh, the fighter jets uh, that you can give uh, and the air defense systems that you can give, because this is what our lives depend depend upon. Yeah, we're disappointed in President Biden. Well, you know, it's not just President Biden. I'm not criticizing him. I'm criticizing just, you know, the West has been living in illusion for quite a while. And the illusion was that every uh, single conflict uh, can be resolved uh, via uh, diplomacy, via talking. And uh, this was the reality in which uh, West uh, existed for quite a while. And then if, uh, once you deal with someone like Putin who attacks, who throws caution to uh, to the wind, and uh, diplomacy doesn't work here. The only thing that works here is standing strong, standing tall. And uh, it came a little bit, it's coming a little bit too late uh, on the part of the West, but Ukraine is standing tall, and this is the good news. You are indeed. Are you afraid that Putin will use chemical and or biological weapons, now that the Russians are accusing the United States and Ukraine of producing biowarfare agents, which this sounds really mad, but which would be flown into Russia by migratory birds. Are you concerned uh, that Putin will reach for chemical and biological weapons, which he did in Syria? Well, uh, he can, uh, although, quite frankly, uh, he used this argument already when the events uh, started unfolding in Kazakhstan. All of a sudden, uh, they uh, uh, started talking about some uh, chemical uh, labs in Kazakhstan that could be used against Russia, and therefore Russian forces should uh, get involved as soon as possible. It sounds so far a bit like uh, uh, one of these, uh, you know, uh, gimmicks that uh, Russian propaganda uses uh, to keep uh, the world uh, in fear. What, uh, is, uh, what, what, what is really uh, terrible and scary is that uh, Russian soldiers are going through our uh, towns and homes and uh, they kill and they loot and they rape. This is what's already happening and this is the atrocity uh, that just uh, the world should be aware of. All right, two weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Anders Aslund, one of the world's premier economic advisors to governments, and he's a former advisor to the Russian government, 1990 to 1994, I think it was Boris Yeltsin in those days, and the government of Ukraine later in 94 through 97. Uh, Dr. Aslund is tweeting, the Russian people should consider eliminating Vladimir Putin, and his book is Russia's Crony Capitalism. So well, let's ask Dr. Asland to assess Putin's actions and how badly Russia is being harmed by international sanctions. Dr. Asland, good to have you back. And uh, and you tweeted, when a war has started, nobody de-escalates. The villain will escalate. Then the good forces also have to escalate. Negotiations can only become meaningful when the villain realizes that he's losing. At what stage are we now, do you think? Uh, thank you very much for inviting me again. Uh, President Zelensky uh, just uh, sent out uh, a message that uh, 31 
tactical bat- battalion groups have now been taken out. That's about one third of the Russian troops uh, of 190,000 men that uh, came into Ukraine. So the Ukrainians are doing extremely well uh, against the massive military uh, machine. So another two weeks, and if I take out as much, then uh, the Russian uh, attack doesn't hang together. It is difficult to understand, is it not, just from a human perspective, how anyone can order the kind of indiscriminate violence against civilians that Putin has ordered his military to carry out against the Ukraine's civilians, and it's difficult to understand how any supposedly professional and organized military would carry out those orders. Well, we have seen this before. Putin did it in uh, uh, the Chechen capital of Grozny uh, in in the early 2000s. He did it uh, in Aleppo in Syria in 2015. This is really according to his playbook. Putin has no human values. He is he's ready to kill however many people he thinks is necessary. And the human losses in Ukraine already in two weeks are probably in the order of 20,000 people. And of these two thirds Russian soldiers, one third Ukrainians, most of all civilians. The Ukrainians now Uh, admit to 1,300 Ukrainian soldiers killed. Yeah, you ask a question on Twitter that I'm sure many people ask. I've asked myself in the middle of the night when I've been watching what's been going on, and I do very little else these days than watch what's going on in Ukraine, but you ask why the Russian people, all of them, don't storm the Kremlin and take out Putin. You, uh, you... You wrote, how can they allow that tyrant to send so many Russians to death? What is it about? What is it about? You understand uh, government and government leadership and and the and the pecking order within government, uh, Dr. Aslan. What is it that allows him to continue to operate as he's operating? Many factors. Of course, Putin has extraordinary security. And... Uh, he lives essentially in bunkers, uh, and uh, in, uh, we don't know where he is most of the time. Is he in Sochi? Is he in the Kremlin? Rarely. Uh, in Valdai, which is his favorite uh, residence, or uh, somewhere else. He has altogether 15 of his, uh, different official residences that he can circulate uh, between. So he's really uh, living like uh, uh, an emperor. And the security is extraordinary around Putin. We can see now that when he has an official meeting with government ministers and the Security Council, either people are sitting 10 meters away from him at the the end of a long table, or he only has a a virtual meeting with uh, television screens. This is clearly a man who's... uh, uh, has uh, quite advanced uh, uh, paranoia. But paranoia is uh, good for dictators if they want to survive. Just think of um, of uh, Stalin. Of course, yeah. There are examples in the world. Let me just take you into your professional wheelhouse, and that's economics. How bad, looking at the sanctions that have been brought against Russia, those sanctions aren't going to stop what's happening on the ground now. We all know that. 
But how bad is Russia's situation now? Much of the world has turned on them, and sanctions have arrived and continue to arrive from every compass point. How bad is it for them? Extremely bad. So all of a sudden, Russia has uh, gone to the stage of uh, North Korea. It's becoming that uh, uh, isolated. It's very, very sad to see. But the problem is uh, uh, Vladimir uh, Putin. So uh, what is the aim now of the sanctions? It's no longer a deterrent. Uh, Putin doesn't care about his people uh, or their standard of living, not even about the size of the economy. So it's really just to cut down the economy so that he can't maintain his large military and uh, other repressive uh, expenditures any longer. That is the, uh, the aim uh, uh, today. And how bad will it get? Uh, well, the forecast changed by the day. Uh, in the uh, early this week, I said a 10 to 20 percent decline. When I look up on uh, Venezuela, that has similar uh, sanctions from 2016 to 2020. GDP in Venezuela during those years fell from 16 to 35 percent a year. So the Russian economy is uh, really crumbling down. Uh, and how it's being done? It is you can't trade. Uh, with Russia any longer. You can't uh, uh, fly. I hear from my friends in Moscow, the only two places they can fly to now are uh, Yerevan in Armenia and Istanbul in uh, Turkey. Everything else is uh, closed. Nor can they get any any, any visas uh, anywhere. Uh, Liberal uh, Russians who don't like Putin are just fleeing as fast as, uh, as they can. But they can't take out money because their credit cards are no longer valid. The bank accounts are pretty much closed. You cannot take out $10,000 and that's all. So the Russian liberals, the middle class, are just in complete panic now and looking up on everything around them that they have built for the last 30 years is just collapsing. But that doesn't influence Putin. Yeah. And uh, I was quite surprised to find out last week that in Russia, a population of, I think, 165 million, only 100,000 families have a combined family value or wealth, if you will, of one million dollars. So that's that means the significant percentage, the majority of the population isn't doing particularly well financially. And if these sanctions are harming them, as you say, they are. And I don't doubt that. Uh, then the, the pain is going to be felt at home and is being felt at home. But but we also have the reality, and you pointed this out, that there are corporations, large ones, banks, Deutsche Bank. Uh, they're not ending their relationship with Russia. Deutsche Bank uh, uh, just decided to end the relations. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, in the last couple of days, have uh, decided uh, to, to leave uh, Russia. So I think that there's hardly any international uh, banks that are, uh, uh, to my knowledge, I'm, I'm aware of four significant Western banks who have not said that they are leaving uh, as yet. Uh, more than 300 well-known Western companies have uh, decided to leave. And Putin then last Thursday said, sorry, then I'm taking your assets. I'm going to confiscate them. And I think that's uh, what's likely to happen. As somebody said back in the USSR. Indeed. But this is worse. 
the Soviet Union was never as uh, isolated as it is now. One good example, uh, New York Times, that persisted through the Russian Revolution, through the Stalin terror, World War II, has now uh, closed its Moscow office because they can no longer guarantee the security of the staff. This is how bad it is. Before I ask you about the world's economy and what advice you would give, Dr. Aslan, would you just remind us, please, because not everybody heard your first interview with me two two weeks ago, what are the fundamentals, if we go to your book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, the fundamentals of Putin and his pals growing immensely wealthy and profiting personally from Russia's forays into international business, banking and trade. How did he structure this? How did he pull it off? Well, the uh, basis of Putin's wealth is Gazprom, uh, the Russian uh, state gas company. Uh, After one and a half years in power, he took control of the company. And a few years later, he organized it so that uh, four friends of uh, his, I was stripped assets from uh, Gazprom, uh, all kinds of assets, and uh, made money on that or delivered uh, to Gazprom. And my assessment is that uh, they made 10 to $15 billion a year on this single uh, company, which is then the biggest gas producer in the, in the world. And then they moved the money offshore. So most of the wealth is offshore. My assessment is that Putin and his four closest the commercial friends from St. Petersburg have about one quarter of the trillion dollars abroad in offshores. And that money is primarily in two countries, the United States and the United Kingdom, because these are countries that have good rule of law and uh, millions of anonymous companies. That is stunning. Those numbers are absolutely numbing. Now, what would you say, what would you advise the world that opposes Putin, and we know the leaders, the political leaders, consistently talk about what they're going to do and what they want to do. Um, The talk is cheap. It's what you do that really matters. But what advice would you give them? And then part B of the question is this. What's the reality of the world economy today, given where we are? Yeah, first, uh, it's uh, sad to see the situation. I've been working for a free market economy uh, in Russia for uh, more than 30 years. Now it it has all disappeared and it's going the other way. But uh, you have to face up to reality. So my advice today is uh, to the West, maximum uh, sanctions, Uh, financial sanctions, cutting off Russia from the international finance, essentially done, Uh, far-reaching trade sanctions, Uh, going ever further every day. You can't invest in Russia any longer, withdraw from Russia. Unfortunately, this turns Russia into North Korea, but uh, that's uh, where Putin has uh, taken his uh, country. Uh, The aim should be to weaken the Russian economy so that it can't afford uh, massive uh, foreign aggression uh, any longer. However sad it may say, who suffers? Everybody. But uh, what will happen to the global economy? Uh, oil and gas prices are bound uh, to, to rise. But can we stop, stop halfway with the sanctions? Not really, because the sanctions today are self-reinforcing. Previously, as you said, sanctions have been 
uh, soft. They have not uh, been uh, developed. People have talked about sanctions from hell time and time again, and then nothing has happened, which has undermined uh, the credibility of sanctions. But now they are really vicious, and uh, uh, nobody can really do business with Russia any longer. The faster you leave Russia uh, as a businessman, big or small, uh, the, the smarter you are. What will happen with these assets? Undoubtedly, Putin will uh, confiscate them in one way or, or the other. Perhaps not uh, legally so, uh, because then he would have to pay uh, <clears throat> a restitution. It's better that they just fall into the hands of uh, the state as abandoned uh, assets. So this is the kind of a mess that I'm expecting. Yeah, it's terrible. So uh, oil and gas, we see when we fill up our cars uh, on a regular basis. It's getting worse and worse and worse. We also have concerns about the food supply and food security. And Russia and Ukraine are not inconsiderable in that equation. They both produce, at the best of times, they both produce a great deal of what's required. Russia produces fertilizer, and uh, and Ukraine produces a great deal of well, raw materials for food. How badly do you think the, the food security of the world is going to be affected if this continues for any appreciable time? Very bad, and you're right to focus on that. That is actually more important than uh, the oil and gas uh, crisis, although they are very important as well. So uh, Russia and Ukraine account for 30% of global wheat exports. They go all through the Black Sea, uh, and there's new shipping uh, going through the Black Sea now because Russia has blocked it all. And it goes primarily to uh, uh, North Africa and to, uh, to the Middle East. So expect uh, food riots in countries like uh, Egypt because uh, uh, of this. The wheat price has already increased from by four times from what it used uh, to be. And it's going to rise uh, much more. Ukraine is the biggest export of corn to China. I wonder if uh, China is... Uh, uh, ready to accept for a long time that uh, uh, Russia has blocked uh, Ukraine's export of corn uh, to China. Doesn't seem to be a very good uh, diplomatic so, uh, so position from for Russia. And uh, this is only what is available now. Then uh, uh, will Ukraine be able to uh, sue um, this spring? I talked to the deputy head of the Central Bank earlier this week in Ukraine, and he said that he thought that 75% would uh, be sown. I don't think so. Uh, ever more people say now it doesn't make sense uh, to sow this uh, year. And then the third factor is what you said, uh, fertilizer. Russia is now blocking its exports of fertilizers. Russia and Belarus are major producers and exporters of uh, uh, fertilizers. And this will hit, uh, hit the whole world. So uh, grain, corn, this will be made, uh, wheat uh, particular, will be major problem uh, for the uh, global economy. On the issue of food, we're always glad to speak with our next guest. He's the most knowledgeable person I know in this country when it comes to 
talking about food, food pricing, where we're headed. Sylvain Charlebois, director of the Agri-Foods Laboratory and professor at Dalhousie University. You'll find him on Twitter at Food Professor. Sylvain, thank you very much for for taking the time. Um, Before I ask you about where we are on the grocery shelves in this country and where we might be, how does this war actually fit into the production of, the distribution of, and the availability of food, given the importance Ukraine and Russia individually play in this whole process? Yeah, well, I mean, the pandemic itself was quite destructive. Uh, over the last two years, uh, we've, uh, I mean, supply chains have experienced fatigue. Uh, even there was a bit of a hangover uh, going into March. But now this invasion uh, is really coming at the worst time in March when most farmers have, have bought their seeds, fertilizers, everything else in, in the northern atmosphere. And uh, and Russia being the number one exporter of wheat in the world, and Ukraine number three in the world, uh, it's uh, certainly a lot of people are concerned about wheat supplies, uh, corn supplies as well, barley. Uh, lots of pulses are grown in that region as well. Uh, sunflower seeds, etc. So all of these commodities we find in many many. Uh, food products we find at the grocery store. So right now, uh, I can tell you a lot of manufacturers are scrambling to know where they'll get their ingredients over the next several months because they know that the world will be short. Uh, will be short of a lot of things, uh, including all the commodities I just mentioned. Yeah. You know, while you were answering the question, I just thought about some, it was really the primary topic for weeks, and that was the cross-border trucking the uh, the food supplies that were being trucked across the border from Canada into the United States, usually raw raw materials, you told us, and then uh, processed food, uh, food ready to be eaten, uh, coming the other way in the billions of dollars. Given the increase in the cost of fuel and the challenges that we know existed as far as getting truck drivers to cross the border, is concerned. How, how much of a factor is all of that still today? Well, yeah, so when we saw uh, oil uh, skyrocketing last week, of course, that, that would be the first factor over the short term that would impact food prices. We truck everything around, and both you and I, we spoke about this uh, on your show many times over the last uh, few months. Uh, because we truck everything around, obviously, uh, trucking companies will be revising their uh, their price list for sure. Over the midterm, we are expecting grain-based uh, food products to be impacted, like bakery, for example. In fact, Roy, just this week, I got I I received a memo from one company, one major uh, food manufacturer in Canada, making bread, basically alerting grocers that uh, prices will will change. Uh, starting in April. So it's already happening. And over the long term, of course, animal proteins will likely be impacted. So uh, what I mean by that, it would be the meat counter once again, which will likely go through another upward cycle along with eggs and dairy. So again, Vladimir Putin's gift to the world uh, is yet another ag commodity super cycle, which we didn't need because 
we do have a food inflation problem uh, on our hands. Uh, just in the U.S. last week, they announced that the food inflation rate is at 8.6%. And we historically, we've, we've often caught up to, to America. So this is, and we're going to hear on March 16th next week what, uh, what the number looks like for February in Canada, but we are expecting a much higher number than 6.5%, which is what we got in January. So we have uh, food prices going up, the cost of food going up. We also have a concern about the availability of at least some foods, maybe more than just some foods. I, I, I don't know. So, so we have that going on. And uh, I saw something else that you tweeted about, shellflation. Talk to us yeah. about what shellflation yeah. is. Actually, it's, it's somewhat related to, to uh, conversations we've had in the past. Uh, so we did talk about supply chain problems. And, uh, I mean, when and anecdotally, what I was hearing from Canadians uh, was that many products, uh, the freshness, the quality of products at retail was not as good as it used to. So we actually, we actually surveyed Canadians about that, and we realized that 63%, 63% of Canadians actually threw away food either before the expiry date or because uh, food was was rotten or was not good to eat anymore prematurely. And the, the term shellflation comes from two words, shelf life and uh, inflation. Um, it's defined as, as, well, a supply chain not being efficient, uh, compromising the shelf life of products at retail. And so if you're a consumer walking into the grocery store, you buy avocados, bananas, apples, whatever, and you come home and after a few days, you find out that your products are you know, rotten or, or too ripping, you have to throw them away, which contributes to the cost of food for your household, which is, well, inflation. So that's why the term inflation is actually quite appropriate in my view. What what stunned me is that, uh, and I hope I'm understanding this correctly, that Canadians threw away threw away more than five hundred million dollars in food in the last six months because of the best before date. That's right. So we actually tried to put a number to the cost of shellflation, and you're right; it's about five hundred fifty million dollars worth of food retail uh, that uh, consumers had to throw away. We often talk about food waste being uh, uh, representing uh, an extra cost to household. Some of it is avoidable. Some of it is unavoidable. The, the issue of shelflation is really kind of in between. You go to the grocery store, you can actually protect yourself from shelflation by buying just enough for a few days, not too much. And if you go to the grocery store more often, you'll actually end up throwing away less, especially uh, in light of what's actually happening with supply chains right now. So you, you can actually do something about it. The shelflation is the cousin of shrinkflation, and shrinkflation got a lot of media <laughs> last year. And shrinkflation is basically, uh, you know, your packaging shrinking, quantity shrinking, but prices aren't changing. So you basically charge the same price for less. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, isn't there, in, uh, right now. And and uh, I, I would think it would be wise for most of us, all of us, actually, 
to be very careful about what we're throwing out and when we're throwing it out and make sure that we get the maximum bang of our for our food buck. Oh, boy. Who, who knows yeah. what we'll be talking about three to four weeks from now, Sylvia. I, I do want I do want to say one thing to sure. to Canadians listening in. I mean, I know that food inflation is rough, and and we're all noticing uh, it at the grocery store, and it's it's quite painful these days, and and also at the pump. But uh, I was listening to uh, your guest earlier saying that uh, we're likely going to see some civil unrest around the world, and it's true. Uh, Ukraine is being hit by an invasion, unprovoked. Uh, unfortunately, um, it will, we will be short of many grains, which will actually trigger some, some food security issues around the world. And as soon as people don't have enough to eat, uh, there will be civil unrest in the Middle East, maybe in Europe. In North America, we're blessed with a lot of agriculture. We do produce a lot of food here on our own continent. We should be fine. We're not going to be exposed to major severe shortages as we are likely to see in the Middle East and, and in Europe. Um, so if you go to the grocery store and you're upset because of higher food prices, you, ha- you are entitled to, but think of the people who have nothing to buy. Yeah. The cost of gasoline and diesel and heating oil is climbing dramatically in this country, as you know. In Vancouver, Chris Sims writes, the B.C. director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, quote, prices have hit more than $2 per liter for regular gasoline in Metro Vancouver. That's the highest gasoline price in North America. Get that. Highest gasoline price in North America, along with the highest gasoline taxes. Uh, I was listening to um, to a commentator a couple of days ago talking about gasoline taxes in california he was very upset the gasoline tax was 51 cents a gallon they had to roll it back there had to be action political action in this country i don't know what is it chris sims joins us from the taxpayers federation in british columbia is 73 cents a liter on on just just carbon tax chris is that the number in metro in metro vancouver it's all the taxes combined is about 73 cents a liter in British Columbia, just the carbon taxes alone, we have two of them. It is about 27 cents per liter. So if I were going to fill my car up today in Vancouver, the most expensive gas station, just by accident, I drive in, I need gas that's on fumes, what am I paying? If you're driving, say, a family sedan, say you're driving a 2010 Toyota Camry, it's about $145 to fill up right wow. now. It's absolutely wild. And then if you do the math on just the carbon taxes alone, say you're driving an average family minivan, you're paying $20 extra just in carbon taxes in BC. It's, it's absolutely outrageous. And it's one of the reasons why average working people now, especially in the lower mainland in BC, are having to choose between groceries and commuting to work. Like, it's just staggering. Well, you make the point, and it's very interesting because I've heard it about other major cities as well. Life, living in the city becomes too expensive, prohibitively expensive as far as purchasing a home or renting a home is concerned. So people move outside the city where it's a little less expensive and they commute to the city. Now, that's manageable when the price of gasoline is manageable. When the price of gasoline leaps the way it has recently, that becomes really problematic because That's, I guess, when it cuts into the food budget, yes? Yes, exactly. So to give you an example, uh, it's not unusual for someone to live, say, in Abbotsford or Langley 
and commute all the way into Vancouver or Burnaby or across the Fraser River up over to Maple Ridge and whatnot. And so if you're driving, just like I said, your average family sedan, you'd fill up twice a week. Easy. And so if you start adding that up, okay, so one, say 140 per fill up, okay, do it twice, 280 per, per week. Now times four. Wow, you're clocking in at about $1,000 just to fill up one smaller car with gasoline. Now combine that with the cost of housing. Your average, average three-bedroom place, not even a full house. I'm talking about a suite. Your average three-bedroom place nowadays in some place like, you know, Abbotsford or Langley, about $3,000 a month. So it's just getting completely unaffordable for average working people And before any of your listeners who are in other parts of Canada say, oh, what about rebates? (laughs) Here in British Columbia, like I said, we have a a provincial-based carbon tax. We have the oldest carbon tax in North America here. We have a second carbon tax layered on top of that. For rebates, average working people don't get them because the moment your two-person working family clocks in at more than $57,000 per year, you get zero the average two-person working family's uh, wage in British Columbia is about $83,000 per year. So way beyond what the average person makes. They don't get rebates. So, so what happens? I mean, the Taxpayer Federation, mm-hmm. uh, taxpayer.com, you, you call on the politicians. You're calling on Premier Horgan. You've, you've called on the Globe Traveler in Ottawa to cut the carbon taxes, the response has been a deafening silence or a roaring no? Same thing, right? Not even deafening silence or a roaring no, but sarcasm and snarkiness, which really adds insult to injury. When Premier Horgan used to be back in the opposition, he used to rail against British Columbia's carbon taxes. And that was back when it was around four cents a litre. Like I said, now combined, it's 27 cents a litre. So back then in those days, when he was in opposition, uh, he used to rail against it because it would cost too much for average working people to, wait for it, drive to work and heat their homes. We've got him on videotape repeating this stuff endlessly. You know, his party used to campaign on axing the tax. They used to call the designation of it being so-called revenue neutral uh, lipstick on a pig. Well, now he's in power. And his government pulls in more than $2 billion per year. We raised this, and so did a couple of reporters with the Premier the other day. You know what he said? He said, well, take the bus. Yeah, he said, take the bus. So you got to keep in mind, it's, it's these working people commuting, you know, hundreds of kilometers every week. And there's trades people involved there. Like, you're going to bring a welder onto non-existent public transit, commuting in from Abbotsford? That's not going to happen. So unfortunately, uh, the premier, who used to drive a truck and used to bust tables when he was a kid at the keg, has really lost touch with what making those ends meet must feel like. Okay, so a little further east in Ontario, a certain premier, Doug Ford, after he was elected in 2018, had every fuel pump, every gas pump at every gas station adorned with a sticker that reminded everyone as you're filling up your vehicle how much you were paying in taxes and how unfair that was. Now the same Premier Ford says, I'm not reducing the carbon tax unless Ottawa does it first. 
Whatever not, happened to commitment? Huh? Whatever. Exactly. Not just that. But Premier Ford can do what Jason Kenney did, and he can ax the provincial taxes in Ontario right. at he the can. pump. And he's refusing to do that, too. And what really burns me there is that that was a campaign promise. It's in writing for the PCs last time around that they were going to cut that gas tax. But now they sit there and pretend that they don't know how to give relief at the pumps. And that's where it gets really infuriating. Yeah, and all the uh, stickers. Back, and, yeah. and Chris, all the stickers are gone. <laughs> Funny how that works. I, I, don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm laughing, but suddenly all the stickers are gone. Well, you laugh or you cry, right? Because this is what really gets you, is that on one hand, there are the folks who, for some reason, think that we could all magically go electric tomorrow. Just flip the switch and say, Santa brings you an electric car. We would automatically have the juice to do that. Number one, no, we wouldn't. Number two, we have no idea what the rates would be for the electricity and we would be able to afford it. So there are those folks who say that we have to make, you know, oil and gas so unaffordable that people are forced to switch to other choices, even though they don't exist right now. But fine. Then there are the politicians who purposefully strangle the supply of gasoline at the pumps like they did here in B.C. and hike up carbon taxes. So it is unaffordable. Then they pretend to go, oh, my goodness, look at this price of gas. How could this happen? It's so disingenuous. That's where it's really insulting. If they want to truly make it out of reach and unaffordable to fill up your vehicle with gasoline or diesel, own it. Say, yeah, that's my policy. And vote for me or not. But you can't have it both ways. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 